What is going on, guys? This is Brendan Burns, and welcome to The Brendan Burns Show. Join me as I interview, dissect, and share the stories of high performers who have created the life that they deserve on their terms. I sit down with speakers, professional athletes, and successful entrepreneurs from all over the world who have chosen to live a life of fulfillment and joy over status and money. In each episode, I share actionable strategies that you can implement in your life, plus inspiration along the way. So come join me for this episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Brendan Burns Show. Joining me today is Dr. Deborah Campbell from Melbourne, Australia. Deborah is an author, psychologist, and former university lecturer who has worked as a psychologist in private practice for almost 20 years, consulting people on everything from relationships to depression, grief, and more. She was also a couples therapist at Relationships Australia and collaborator with, with author and psychotherapist, Dr. Francis McNabb, on thought leadership in well-being, relationships, and spirituality. As a teenager, Deborah starred, started out as an actor appearing in Harvey Firestein's Spookhouse for Playbox Theater, making regular appearances in Neighbors and other Melbourne TV institutions. Drawn to personal spirituality, Deborah moved into yoga and mindfulness teaching, led to the founding of Hobson's Bay Yoga and Natural Health and Newport Yoga Centers. The desire to continually deepen her understanding of psychology and led her to her PhD. Her thesis on love and emotional intelligence won the Relationships Category Award for the Australian Psychological Society. Deborah's research has been published in peer-reviewed journals in Australia and the U.S., including Spirituality and Clinical Practice and the International Journal of Yoga Therapy. She's a regular contributor to the Huffington Post and Ariana Huffington's Thrive Global. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So uh, that's quite a background, and it sounds like you've done quite a bit in your career. Um, what most interests you in getting involved in studying and helping people with relationships specifically? I think at the very start, I was really motivated to try to understand myself. And my journey's been, I suppose, like most people's, a bit windy and um, trying to find my way to what, what was a passionate interest for me. And I think that because I struggled in my own relationships early on in my 20s, it made me very interested in investigating how do you make better ones? And then that took me into my field of study and research. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of my own inner work and wanting to understand my relationships got me to a point where I do a lot of relationship coaching myself. That's beautiful. Did you notice any specific patterns occurring over and over again, either selecting unavailable partners or finding yourself in the same traps or the same types of people again and again? Yes, I did. I was very uh, worried about abandonment and loss because that was a story from my childhood with my father. And I also, because I didn't have my father, I didn't really understand on a, on a soul level and a heart level, although I might have had an intellectual understanding, I didn't really get what a good connected relationship with strong empathy and a real sense of trust felt like because 
I hadn't had that in the father-daughter sense where, you know, a lot of our understanding of what healthy attachment is on that, that sort of soul level, that heart level comes from early on. If we don't have that gift of that, and many of us don't for various reasons, um, a parent couldn't be there physically or they weren't really there emotionally as they could have been, uh, sometimes through no fault of their own, um, but they couldn't be, then we don't necessarily know what we're looking for when we go out into the world. We have a yearning, we have a longing for something, but we kind of don't know what it looks like and it makes us more vulnerable, I think, to mistakes uh, in choosing a partner. So I did make quite quite a few of those mistakes where I just, I wouldn't choose someone who had what I needed, but I didn't really know how to articulate or then reach out for what I needed. Yeah, well, you, that makes two of us because I had a lot of abandonment in my past through, from my mother. And so I kind of found that cycle to be repeating in terms of who I picked and people mimicking that. Now, you've mentioned modeling empathy and I've also read on your website and some of your writings that you talk a lot about self-compassion. And there are a lot of people out there who have heard these words. They're, I, I hope and I think, becoming more popular words, which is great. Um, and I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about what you think self-compassion and empathy are and how building up a practice like that of your own compassion towards yourself and having empathy for yourself can positively benefit romantic relationships. Yes, it, it all starts with self-awareness and, and mindfulness of the way I think we speak to ourselves in our own minds on a daily basis. And that's not something that most people are taught to do uh, as kids or from an early age to sort of listen and, and hear your own inner dialogue. If it's less than caring a lot of the time, if it's a bit mean, if you have that strong inner critic, uh, at work in you, then it's worth just reevaluating the the power of that that sort of side of you or that voice uh, in your consciousness and talking back to it a little bit, moderating it. Um, I, I sometimes think of that movie Inside Out, an animated kids movie where there's those different little characters in our in the mind, and sometimes that mean girl or mean guy is a bit too vocal and just needs to to kind of settle down a bit we need to rise up that kind more uh mindful chairman or chairwoman of the board and just say to the inner critic when they're carrying on that's enough thank you that's not helpful and let them be there they're a part of us they're trying to do something helpful by you know trying to make us do a better job or uh, warning us that we might be judged or you know they've got their thing going on where they're trying to be a helpful defense mechanism to us but sometimes they've crossed the line and they're getting nasty they're getting in the way of us being kind and supportive and loving to ourselves and real and they just need to to back off a little bit and not be uh dominant of of the entire kind of board of management that we've got in our minds. Yeah, yeah, I, I know that from my past and I, I work with a lot of clients and people on that. So um, a lot of times when I share that, 
advice, which is so helpful. Um, people come back to me with like a fear that Brendan, if I, if I let go of that mean voice either towards myself or to other people, I'm scared that I won't get anything done. And even though people acknowledge that they know on some level, maybe just intellectually that being really harsh on yourself or being really harsh towards someone else is not the right way to do it, or it can be hurtful and damaging. People, I find people to be scared. Like, well, if I'm not, you know, hard on myself, how, how do I motivate myself? How do I have assurance that what I want will happen, you know, isn't being, in, and, and I, I know that this is um, not helpful, but it, it's a pattern that I see people having that fear of releasing. And I'm curious if you had that in your experience, or if you see that with people you work with, or, and, and how you can like comfort them to say, it's okay. It's, it's actually safe to be kinder. By doing so, you'll actually get more of what you really want. Yeah, and there is some science out there. There's some research out there where people were doing tasks or sports, like I think one of them was archery. And they'd have someone stand next to them and uh, tell them that they put a lot of pressure on them in a negative voice, tell them that they were hopeless, that they were useless, that they needed to try harder, that they were pathetic at this, that, you know, they needed to, to pull it together and do better and was talking to them in this very mean, critical voice uh, as they were doing the tasks. Then uh, another group were spoken to in a way that was encouraging, you've got this, you know, coaching that was very positive and strengths-based, reminding them of how good they could be at the task. And the people who were coached in a positive way tended to do better overall. So there is, there is science behind how we speak to ourselves and the results we're likely to get. You know, old school coaching could tend to be um, very aggressive, Whereas these days, most coaches who, who have, um, have trained have found that being more strengths-based and looking at helping a person come from where they're strong and be even stronger um, can get the best results whilst you're also working on their vulnerabilities as well in the, in the background. Talking down to ourselves tends to push us down rather than rise us up. Yeah. 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 And... And also, you know, it's, it's when you talk down to yourself, then you talk down to other people. And so as a recipient of that, potentially, what would you say to someone who either has um, a boss or a family member or even is in a relationship with someone who can be harsh? Um, now, obviously, if that person's being very harsh and not doing anything about it, you know, you might want to talk about reassessing. But maybe you just have someone at work that's tough to deal with, or you have someone that occasionally can be that way. Um, do you ever help people try to understand and have compassion towards how they may be suffering and kind of maybe mitigate the, the pain that the recipient feels? Yeah, when I'm working with couples in therapy um, and generally in life, you know, there's one rule for all aspects in, in my life, the way, the way I operate around this. And I don't believe in criticism as a useful thing. Now, sometimes people try to get around that and they'll talk about constructive criticism. Oh, I'm just saying this to try to help you. I don't really buy even, even that. 
criticism usually causes defensiveness in the other person and leads them to feel uh, trust has been breached. They often feel personally attacked. They don't feel loved and supported in a moment of criticism uh, in a personal relationship. Now, at work and in performance-based settings, sure, we do have to look at what went wrong and fix things. Um, but there, there are ways of doing that that are, um, that are supportive. And I think workplaces and leadership programs are getting better at that. In personal relationships, that I, which is mainly my field, um, I say to people, look, I, I think that's sounding critical to your partner. I'll check with the other person. It's feeling critical. It's feeling uncomfortable. They're, they're telling me they're feeling sad or, or whatever or hurt. So let's look at how we could do that differently. If something's not working for you, can you use the language of, of speaking about yourself rather than accusing and criticising the other person? Can you instead say, look, I'm feeling frustrated or I'm feeling worried that doing things that way or is not working? Um, and then have a solution focus. Ask the other person, can you help me by doing it in this different way? Or can you help me because... I'm feeling angry or frustrated. Can we go for a walk or can you give me a time out? Or instead of saying, you're this or you're that or you're not good enough in this way or that way. Let's shift that around to, look, I'm feeling this way. It's not working for me in this aspect. Can you help me to fix that up? And then you're asking for teamwork rather than judging and potentially alienating the other team member. Mm. Yeah, and I love how you say team member there and coming at it from a vantage point of how can we work together on this versus kind of more of an antagonistic approach. That's really powerful. Now, how do you uh, help couples where, let's say one person has a background in abandonment, for example, and they have either a fear that their partner is going to go somewhere or they feel like their partner is more independent or less interested What's the balance between encouraging that person who has the abandonment past to go find a partner who is very secure and very open to intimacy and, you know, excited to plan dates and take a big initiative in the relationship versus the anxious partner needing to learn how to meet their own needs and not expecting too much of their partner? Like, where's the balance there? And when does someone with more of that abandonment past need to take responsibility for an emptiness that they might have because of their past versus say, hey, I'm with someone who's just like too career focused for me and they're just not making me a priority and it's just making me feel even more abandoned. What's the balance there? And do, is that something you ever see? Yes, it is. When I work with couples, I'm really working with three aspects or three clients as it were. There's the two people and there's their histories and their, what they each bring into the room, into their relationship, you know, their particular vulnerabilities, the path they have, have come to, to get there throughout their past, their ideas from their family background of what a couple relationship, a marriage looks like and feels like from what they saw and experienced around them. Uh, they sometimes have different dreams and ideas for career, as you say, and different expectations around what family life 
will look like. And often they have very different communication styles. Some may have come from a family where robust discussion was the normal way of, of talking with each other and the other may have come from a more quiet or distant or um, conflict-averse kind of environment. So people bring in the different things. Then the third client in the room is the relationship. And that in that, I'm usually looking for what are the cycles that are going around between them that seem to take off over and over again and that are causing them pain? You know, is there a, a sort of a, a withdrawal and then feeling desperate on the other partner's part cycle that, that I'm being left, I'm being abandoned, I'm scared, whereas the other is just perhaps trying to uh, accomplish other things in life, as you say, uh, focus on work, that sort of thing. So I'm looking at the patterns that happen between the two of them too and working on um, really all those three, those three aspects at the same time. So we might have to build up the sense of self-compassion, positive self-talk, uh, self-trust uh, in, in one partner more than the other. And we might have to work with the compassion, the understanding, uh, the, the uh, asking for uh, more safety uh, in the other, in another partner, uh, and both look at what we put into the cycle that freaks out the other person, or that that frightens them, or that doesn't create as much safety for them as would be ideal, and to take take that out or change your contribution to the cycle as well as becoming more self-aware uh, in your own self, if that makes sense. It's, it's pretty complex. Yeah, no, I, I understand that. I, I, and that's really helpful to sort of see how you effectively work with couples and based on their past and their present and their relationship. Now, to just kind of concretely go into my initial question and then maybe restate it in a broader sense, how do you how do you think about if someone's in a relationship and they have, let's say they have some kind of past where they might have unrealistic expectations but at the same time their partner is potentially genuinely not making themselves available what's the balance between when do you tell someone that and maybe this might come up more in individual therapy for example than couples work but when would you advise someone to say look, this is more on you in terms of getting your real your expectations within reason of not expecting your partner to meet all your needs? And when would you say, look, you're with someone who's unavailable and wants a much more independent and different type of relationship and advise them to look elsewhere? Is that something that you've ever come across in either direction? And if so, is there a line where you advise in one direction versus the other? I, I never advise anyone to look elsewhere because I think that's probably me, that would be stepping over a line, a thing that only they could, only they could know or decide because I'm, I'm not in their heart and I'm not in their relationship. I can, however, as you say, weigh up what's realistic and what isn't. Um, and you know, even if two people have to be apart or one has to work long hours or one has strong ambitions or one is a more um, solitary uh, type of, of person and that's not balancing up, 
Um, even if that's the case, we can have more empathy develop, more compassion for the other person's point of view develop um, without having to compromise who you are. So I'd be constantly looking at whether whether that was possible. You know, how can how can I encourage and support um, each person or the person I'm seeing to find more flow and, and engagement in their own personal world, to be kinder to themselves, to fill up their own tank, rather than necessarily looking for that always in the other person. Um, if after a while with that, we found that we'd worked on that as hard as we could, but they were still dissatisfied in their relationship, then I'd be turning back to the relationship and asking more and more, um, okay, well, would you like to bring your partner in? Could we look at ways that you can come together more and have, have a more shared existence if this is really not working for you? Mm. Got it. Okay. That makes sense. And do you believe that personal development, self-improvement, um, which is also, I believe, a growing area that more people are open-minded to now, which I think is fantastic. Um, do you think that's something that either party or both people need to have in order to be in a relationship together? For example, let's say one person has more of a practice and they're doing inner work and they're working on themselves and the other is supportive of that, but doesn't either is maybe afraid to go inside themselves or doesn't think that they need to. Is that ever an issue in a relationship? Or do you think that um, having a practice on both sides is important for either being open-minded or bettering themselves? I think it can be very different and you can be into very different things, but it's looking for those overarching uh, perspectives where you come together, you know, an, an overarching uh, set of values that you share, uh, at least most of them, uh, that you're able to talk about what you value, that you're able to connect on the bigger picture of what you want life to look like and how you want to feel. Within that, you can pursue very different interests and have very different ways of getting into flow and engaging with your passions and have very different passions um, and, and enjoy different friendship groups. So long as you have that overarching sense of trust and we're a team and we're on the same path, we want and value the same things, you can be each contributing really different uh, things to that that uh, team, really. Uh, my partner and I, my husband and I are really different. He's uh, not, not really into any of the kind of psychological personal development that I'm into, but he, he's a very grounding force in my life. Uh, he'll, when I think a lot and I'm uh, uh, thinking very deeply about the human condition sometimes, he can really help me to just snap out of that and do something really simple and, and gentle and earthy and grounded. And when he's struggling with some of the deeper issues, I can go straight in there with him and say, oh, well, I, you know, give my opinion or my guidance around something and really help him out. So it's a great complementary team, even though we don't, we don't do the same things. We don't pursue the same paths in our growth uh, very often. Mm. And mm. when you work with people, what do you see is like the most common reason why people 
are having conflict in relationships or the biggest reason why people break up? Because I feel like so much of it is preventable if people had the right tools to either do their own inner work or do work together in a relationship. So what do you, like if someone comes to you and a couple says, you know, that's it, we're going to break up for sure. Um, but we'll give you one session or we'll give this couple's counseling a final shot. Is there, are there any kind of common or repetitive cycles that you see a lot where if people knew a tool or a resource that you could share with listeners, potentially they could do that now and then not have to get to that bad place at the end? Yes. People usually leave it too late before they come for couple therapy or for some kind of couple help. Um, often that's just because there's two people involved. One might have wanted to come earlier and the other didn't. They weren't on the same page. Um, what has usually happened is distance started building a long time back. And at first it was slow and it was quiet that they stopped talking about things that mattered or stopped having as much fun, uh, let too many things go without discussing them but held a bit of resentment inside and didn't really let go on the deeper level, just sort of swept things under the carpet and, you know, clocked up a little bit of a little tick of resentment on the side. And that's been going on for too long. The intimacy sometimes is, is very low or has gone. The sexual intimacy is sometimes stopped or sometimes it continues, but it has now an empty quality to it. There's sometimes sex, but it's not on that emotional uh, level. So much distance has gone, but a practical kind of everyday uh, getting on with it has been going on for a long time, often around kids and just work and household. So practically they might be working okay as a team, but uh, a lot of distance. Criticism is often there. Um, sometimes quite a, a dislike of one another born from so much resentment having built up is just sitting under the surface. Mm. That leads to couples often, or one person at least, if not both, turning to other people for intimate conversation, for sharing what's in their heart. Sadly, sometimes then that goes to really uh, moving into a, a new relationship outside the marriage, and often that's secretly. Mm. So I see a lot of that kind of trajectory. Yeah. Got it. And, you know, when these things happen, like, let's say there's a listener out there who is really excited about creating a healthy relationship, and they're focused on doing good inner work, but also looking for um, a healthy partner. Um, how do you, you know, how do you compare like the importance of doing your own inner work versus the importance of finding uh, the right type of partner? Because is it the case that someone could do a lot of great work, but select the wrong partner and then fall into these traps? Or do you believe that if someone does enough good work on themselves and has these tools and brings them to the relationship that you know, for almost always, these things wouldn't come up. So I'm just basically trying to understand, I see in general the importance of both, but do you need both for a healthy relationship? How do you prioritize inner work versus partner selection there? Mm, they're both very, very important. Um, yeah, you can, 
I, you know, I think they're probably almost of equal importance, to be honest. Um, I think having done the self-work and knowing what your vulnerabilities are and knowing some of the things that you really need and value the most. Um, like, for example, for me, it was I really wanted a sense of safety and strong trust. I had to choose someone where I could feel that emotional safety and a strong sense of trust. Now, that didn't mean I was going to necessarily get it right, but I suppose experience, some trial and error, and really trying to be patient and get to know uh, a potential new partner really well, trying to hold back that excitement and impulsivity and not rush in too quickly, just giving yourself time to see how the qualities I hope are there really really emerging and seeming to be there is there real evidence that they are going to have the the qualities that I yearn for most because if they're not they're um potentially not a good choice are there guarantees no of course there's not you hope that you're choosing well you hope that your radar uh, is strong enough uh, from the development that you've done on yourself the, the understanding you have in yourself but sometimes it's still possible to, to not see things, to make a mistake. People are complex. Um, but I think the more work you do do on yourself, the more understanding you have of human nature in general, uh, the more likely you are to be able to be patient and, and make a good choice for yourself. I think they're really two very equally important and overlapping sort of concepts, yeah. Mm, awesome. Well. Dr. Deborah Campbell, this has been so enlightening and interesting to me, and I know the listeners are going to find so much value here. Uh, if people wanted to learn more about you or what you have to offer, is there a website or, or social media or best place where people can reach you? Yes, absolutely. It's drdebracampbell.com, and I do have a, a free program of emails daily that are supportive and inspiring daily emails. Um, around relationships, self-compassion and finding your flow and passions in life. So that's there on my website, The Three Loves Project. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for coming on the show and for sharing all this amazing knowledge. I know our listeners are going to love this and uh, really appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Lovely to speak with you. Yep. You too.